As you've probably uh, noticed, um, prayer is really important to us as a church, and we want to make sure that the needs of our church are being lifted up in prayer. So when you walk in the door on a Sunday morning, you are handed a, a church bulletin, and I want you to, uh, to take note that there's a colored sheet in the church bulletin every week that gives you the prayer requests and praises of the body of believers that assemble here. We'd really encourage you to, um, to take a look at that and throughout the week to be lifting up your, uh, your family in uh, prayer, your church family, that we might take our needs before the Lord and, uh, and know that, that He hears everything that we, that we uh, ask of Him, uh, that we are lifting one, and up and one another up in prayer is a, is a great encouragement to us. And if there's something that you would like to add to that worship sheet, then in the front of the seat in front of you, in the back of that seat, uh, there's a little prayer card. And you can always write down a prayer request. You can either put that into the offering uh, bags when they are passed around during that part of the service, or there's a little metal box on the back of the sanctuary that you can always put your prayer requests in there. Uh, we read over those. We pray over them. If you just want that to be confidential, if it's something that's sensitive and you just want your elders praying over that, you can mark that off in the box and we'll take note. Um, but we want you to know that we pray for your needs, that we don't uh, just... Ask that you be praying, that we're praying for you as well, because prayer is so important to what we do. It's, it's how we fellowship in a fundamental way uh, with our God. So let's continue to be a, a people of prayer that are lifting up one another's needs and, and advocating to the Lord uh, for the things that are going on in the church. Hope you've all got your note sheets and your Bibles. Um, we've definitely got a, a lot to learn today in Galatians chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to that wonderful part of God's Scripture. The last two chapters of the book of Galatians are focused <clears throat> on practical application, on the practical application specifically of the salvation principles that were laid out earlier in the book of the Galatians. The Apostle Paul has shown the Galatians that we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. We are not saved by our works. We are not saved by keeping the law. And now as the letter approaches its conclusion, Paul's careful to explain that those who are free from the burden of the law can now fulfill the law by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live in the truth that the law describes to us. As we begin chapter 6, we are not leaving behind the contents of chapter 5. So keep in mind, uh, the fruits of the Spirit, the battle that is waged in us against the war of the flesh, warring against the Spirit. Uh, so we're going to build on those principles today instead of leaving them behind. Paul has been shedding light on how to live according to the Spirit and how that is radically different than living according to the flesh. He has challenged his readers to, to walk in step with God's Holy Spirit by bearing good fruit, um, fruit that show the characteristics and the, the goodness of who God is to the world. And so here we carry those thoughts into what we'll begin reading today in Galatians chapter 6. You've got your scripture. Um, we are going to be reading verses 1 through 5. I'll be reading out of the uh, English Standard Version. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. In the opening verses of Galatians chapter 6, Paul describes a responsibility that is set aside for a specific type of believer. And he wants this responsibility to be accomplished in a very specific way. The restoration of a brother from sin is a responsibility set aside specifically for those believers in Galatia who Paul describes as spiritual. Now what we most commonly think as spiritual people might not match what Paul has in mind here today. If somebody asks you to describe someone who is spiritual, you might say, well, they probably practice yoga, you know, to work out. They've got random crystals hanging around, maybe from their rearview mirror. Uh, they have a way of of, of looking at signs from the cosmos to direct their decisions. They might burn incense. They, they might notice your aura or, or uh, look after horoscopes to give them ideas about what they should do next. Those are the kind of spiritual, mystical people we think about in the world, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Remember the context that has just been set for us at the end of chapter 5. 
Paul just taught us to be filled with a spirit of an entirely different kind. He told us not to live according to our carnal desires, but rather to walk in step with God's spirit that now resides within every believer who's given their life to Jesus Christ. So a spiritual person is one who is devoted in all areas of their life to yielding to the leadership of that sanctifying Holy Spirit that God has placed in the hearts of believers to help and to guide, to exhort, to convict, to encourage. That Spirit is so useful to us. And so when we think about a spiritual person in Christian terms, it's one who is led by God's Spirit, who is dependent upon the Spirit of God. Spiritual people are not just interested in mystical, mysterious things. They are those who are under the influence of God's direction. The emphasis is not on the individual so much as it is on God's Spirit displaying its power in that individual. These Holy Spirit-filled Christians have a responsibility, and that responsibility is to restore any brother who's caught in a transgression. Paul does not say that this task is reserved or elders here, does he? No, he says, let those who are spiritual among you. But I'd like to think that there are more among us here who are spiritual than just our elders, right? This is a practice for anyone who's being led by the Spirit of God and is walking in step with God's leading. He does not limit this behavior to those who are called to an ordained position in the church. Rather, the difficult task of helping to keep our fellow Christians from sin is a task that is shared by any Christian who is living in such a way that the Spirit is front and center in their lives. It goes without saying that there are times in the life of any Christian when despite the powerful work that God has done to justify us, to cleanse us of our unrighteousness, and to fill us with the righteousness of Jesus, despite that great and mighty work, believers still fall into sin, don't we? The way that Paul describes it is that these believers are caught up in a trespass. And it implies that they were not out looking for sin. They're not reveling in sin. They're not devising ways to sneak around and get into sinful practice. But rather that they stumbled into it. That they were living in a sinful world. They were not vigilant. They were not guarding their hearts. They were not being careful to walk in step with the Spirit. And so they have been hindered by this sin that they find themselves falling into. Perhaps they... They began a habit that they used to have before they were redeemed. Perhaps they fell in step with the patterns of the world or begin to believe things that don't come from the Word but come from the opinions of man. You might think of the imagery here of a sheep. A sheep with its long woolly coat having wandered into a patch of, of berries. Saw the small fruit on this thorny vines and went to go enjoy the delicious flavor of the fruit without realizing that the the hair that they have, this woolly coat, could so easily become entangled in the thorns of the, the, the vines of that, that berry patch. And so that sheep gets tangled up, and the more it thrashes, the more it becomes entangled, and before you know it, that sheep is absolutely vulnerable. If someone does not come help extract it from its problem, then it's going to be stuck, and it's either going to starve to death, or it's going to be a sitting duck waiting for some wolf or other predator to come along and to feast upon it. And so we, we praise God for this imagery of the sheep and the shepherd. We know that the shepherd of Jesus Christ, that He comes along, and shepherds often in those days had a long hooked staff, and that staff was specifically to put around a sheep that had become stuck or lodged somewhere, that they might gently pull them out of that briar patch and free them from the mess that they had wandered into. So as we think about this idea that God's people are being called to the task of restoring one another when we stumble in sin and when we fall into patterns of what is wicked. That should show us that any notion of antinomianism should go out the window here. As you've been along this journey in Galatians with us, this idea of antinomianism is the idea that, well, since God has saved us by grace and since now we're no under, longer under the law, that we don't have to worry about all the rules in the Bible anymore. That's not something that we care about. We're, we're beyond that now. We can live however we really want to live because God has set us free from all of that. But in reality, the law has not been extinguished by Jesus Christ. The law has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And when the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell inside of us, 
Now we have the opportunity to live that law out in a way that we never could before. Galatians makes it crystal clear that the law doesn't save us, but the law is not something that we can afford to ignore as Christians. God desires for us to pay close attention to the law, to desire the things that God desires for us. Just because a Christian has entered into the covenant of grace and is no longer under that law of Moses, that doesn't mean that the law is useless and that we can do whatever we want. But real freedom isn't freedom from what is good. It is not freedom from what is right. True freedom is freedom from sin through Jesus Christ. And once we have that freedom, we are finally able to do what is good and right by His strength. Disciples surrender themselves to the leading of God. And He leads through His Word. If keeping the law didn't matter at all, there would be no point in Paul training the church to help restore those who'd fallen into sin. That'd be a waste of Scripture, wouldn't it? So we should strive for holiness. But when we fall short, which we inevitably will, those who are walking in the Holy Spirit should go out of their way to help a brother or a sister who's fallen into temptation and is caught up in a sin. Contrary to uh, popular opinion, the most loving thing that we can do is not just sit by and let someone figure things out on, on their own. This society that we live in has become so tolerant and has exalted personal freedom to such a high degree that now we feel almost like we are offending somebody. We're doing something a disservice by helping them out when they struggle and fall into sin. But that's not the case. We see this here, that Paul desires for us to be cautious about sin ourselves, but to also care about one another enough that we are watching out for one another like a family truly should. Restoration is the goal of any confrontation that we encounter with other believers. Not retribution. When someone falls into sin, we don't want to make sure that they pay the penalty for that sin. Okay, That's not the point. Christ has already paid the penalty for our sins, hasn't He? So we're not here to, to keep track of everybody's wrongdoing so that we can make them give retribution to the church somehow. It is not a display of my own superior spirituality when I restore another brother to the, the right behavior that they are called to in Scripture. That's not the point of restoration. It's not just some way for me to show you how holy I am as I correct you towards what is good. It's not even just behavior modification. We don't restore a brother just so that they stop annoying us with their sinful behavior. We restore a brother for the sake of their own heart and soul. We restore a brother for the sake of the name of Christ that they bear as Christians. In one sense... In what sense does a sinner need restoration? You might ask, if, if he is forgiven in Christ, isn't the restoration done? Hasn't he already been justified? Well, the answer to that question is yes and no. Every Christian is positionally restored by the blood of the Lamb. Because we have trusted in Jesus Christ and because he has paid the penalty of our sin, we no longer belong outside of the kingdom of God anymore. We have brought, been brought near to Him. He has drawn us into His family. And so every Christian is rightfully in the family of God. But there are times when our fellowship with God and our fellowship with other believers in God's church suffer as a result of our sin. How many of you have the tremendous privilege of living in a neighborhood that has a homeowner's association? Anyone? Uh, I, I know that when you're looking to move, you're probably looking at what size is the lot, you know, are, is it nearby good schools, easy access to the freeway. Those are all good things, but does it have a grade A homeowners association? That's what we all want, right? Um, homeowners association, if you've never encountered that, is, uh, is a group of individuals that look over neighborhoods. And, and there are certain developments that have been established with a contractual agreement that anyone who lives in that neighborhood has to abide by certain regulations and guidelines. Now, some homeowners associations are like dictatorships that uh, <laughs> oppress you and try to control your every move. They, you can't change the light bulb in your, uh, your front porch light without getting approval by the HOA. But a good HOA is there for good reasons. You know, when you have a homeowners association, that keeps people from painting their house bright purple. It keeps people from letting their front yard grow four feet in height. And it keeps them from collecting car after car after car in front of their house, as I would probably do if I was not regulated. So homeowners associations serve a purpose. There are pros and cons to it. 
When you don't mow the lawn, it doesn't mean that you're out of the neighborhood. You're not ejected from living in that place. But people will talk to you. They will send you a letter. They will encourage you to get that right yourself. And if you don't get it right, then there are some penalties for ignoring the guidelines and you can be fined and they can call you to come to a meeting and they can, they can get on your case a little bit. The whole idea being that the community is a better community if we all look out for one another and if we all agree to live by a certain standard of cleanliness and responsibility. We don't want people who are believers to fall through the cracks. We don't want people to live in tension with one another. If we allow sin to just infect the church, then guess what? Nobody's sin only affects themselves. There is not a single sin you can commit that doesn't spill out of the borders of your own life. So when we live in sin, we get tangled up in things that characterize rebellion to God instead of characterizing union with God. Then our actions are going to begin to spoil the friendship and the unity that we experience as a community of believers that gather together like a family. We have a right relationship with Christ through His blood. We also have a relationship to our church through faith. But if we're walking in sin, the quality of that relationship is in jeopardy. That sin is causing us to be distant from the Father and at odds with our brothers and sisters. So when we're talking about restoration here, we're not saying that every time you sin, you stop being a Christian and you lose your salvation. Far be it from that. Your identity is in Christ if you have given your life to Jesus. But your relationship with Him is important as well. The, the quality of your interactions with God and with your fellow believers. And so if you are in sin and the Lord opens your eyes to it, you need to be restored to that right relationship. Restored to a, a better fellowship with God. A more, a more carefree prayer life. When we are sinning against our God and we, we bow in prayer to the Lord, the Holy Spirit is going to remind us that what we are doing is not pleasing to our dad. It's not, it's not uh, a benefit to our walk with him. It is, it is offensive to our Savior. And so our prayer life is going to be hindered if we continue to have sin in our life that goes unchecked. So we want to have our re relationship with the Lord, our closeness to him, restored by dealing with that sin and casting it out of our lives. We want to be restored to honest living so that our, our conscience will be clear and the Holy Spirit that it resides in us doesn't have to grieve us and remind us that we are called to a holier life now. We want to be restored to healthy fellowships in the church family as we get along with each other better when we are not living in sin, when we are not hurting each other, but are rather holding each other up and praying for one another. We want to be restored to freedom over sin. Remember, we've been set free from this sin that was a slave master to us before. So when we deceive ourselves and allow ourselves to live in sin again, we are unknowingly returning shackles to our hands that have been loosed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We want to be free from those, those impulses and those urges that cause us to do things that we know are, are not dignified, that are not in accord with the character of our Savior. And we want to be restored to true doctrine as well. Sometimes our thinking gets off track and we begin to listen to the voice of the world when we begin to see things of the Lord inaccurately, we need brothers and sisters who will lovingly come to us and return our eyes to God's Scripture so that together we can have a doctrine that truly proclaims who God really is and doesn't distort the picture of Him to this world. You know, this process of restoration, when we care enough about a brother or sister to go to them and to talk to them about what we see that's wrong in their lives, when we, when we take them to Scripture, and when we gently and lovingly help them to take steps to be obedient to the Lord again. This is not only beneficial to the true believers, but it can also help someone who might be involved in a church, but doesn't yet even have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Throughout churches in the world, there will be true saints gathered together to glorify and magnify the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, today. But mingled among them will be people who believe in their own minds that they have a relationship with Christ, but their heart doesn't truly love Him as it should yet. Perhaps they grew up in the church and they just always assumed that they were right with the Lord because their parents were right with the Lord. Perhaps they uh, were blessed by the help of the church and that personal friendliness drew them to that community and they love the benefit of being around other people that care about godly and good things, but they yet don't have a relationship with Christ. 
So when we are diligent to look after one another, and if somebody is caught up in a sin and tangled up with things that they ought not be doing, when we go to them and, and help them to see that in submission to the Lord, we, we owe Him our whole life, and that we should lay down our, our, our freedoms to Him, then often that will be an opportunity to help someone see whether they even have a real relationship with Jesus Christ or not. You can help someone who is on the path to destruction, but thinks they're safe, realize that they really need to trust in Jesus Christ. A wonderful example of that, shared in testimony by a man who used to come to our church. His name was Tommy Edwards. And Tommy, for many, many years, was going to First Family Church. Uh, he had been baptized. Uh, he knew all the right things to say. He shared the gospel with others. He was involved with Celebrate Recovery Ministries. Uh, he was constantly talking about Jesus. But his heart wasn't quite there yet. He didn't know that. But his heart was not quite committed to the Lord Christ. And so, when no one was looking, he was living in ways that were not honoring to the Lord. And he hid that double life for a time until it caught up with him. And honesty had to bring it to the surface. And he spent some time in prison for what he was doing. And in that time in prison, there wasn't a whole lot for him to do. So Tommy decided to just read scripture. And that's what he spent the vast majority of the time doing. Just pouring through God's word. And as he became confronted by the word of God, as he was forced to see the error of his sin and to see how it grieved the Lord Jesus, he began to have a great love for Christ. A love that far surpassed any interest that he had in Christianity before that time. And so when he finally fulfilled his sentence and was released from jail, we rejoiced to have him come back into the church. And he was baptized again for the first time as a believer in Jesus Christ. And that happened because God loved him enough to confront his sin. God did not just allow him to continue to walk in that dual life, that pattern of yes sometimes, but no other times. Tommy realized what it was like to have his yes be yes and his no be no. What a beautiful salvation. And now he's in Vallejo, um, taking care of his elderly parents and attending a strong church and thankful for the Lord's salvation in his life. Here in Galatians chapter 6, Paul tells these spiritual believers to go about that restoration in a very specific way. They are to restore a fellow brother in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. The kind of restoration that pleases God and the kind of restoration that actually works is gentle restoration. And that word for gentle there should be familiar to us who've been walking through the book of Galatians together because last week it was described as one of the fruits of the Spirit in chapter 5, verse 23. People... Um, gentle people are not weak people. We talked about how gentleness does not mean that you're soft and that you never confront and that you're always just kind of letting everyone do what they want to do. Rather, gentle people are powerful people who are careful about the way that they confront sin. They are powerful people who take action in a metered and measured way. Who wants to be restored back into a community that's defined by judgment and contempt. No one wants to be restored into a community where people are mad at each other all the time, when people are constantly competing against each other all the time, when they are quick to throw each other down and step upon one another. People want to be restored into a community of love and kindness, a community of forgiveness, a community of grace. There are those who correct from a primary motivation of control, there are those who correct from a primary motivation of fear and not love. And for those who are just trying to control the behaviors of others, it can seem really effective at times when you are forceful and demanding, when you are threatening. Sometimes people listen to you. Sometimes people seem to change. But the truth is that a person who is pressed into repentance by fear will repent in word and indeed only. Right restoration, however, comes with authentic repentance. It is more than a change in behavior. It is a change in heart by which the fallen brother or sister develops a sincere hatred for their own sin and a commitment to walking in a new way, a way that matches the will of the Savior. You don't get somebody there through judgmentalism. You don't get somebody there through competition or through condemnation. You get people there 
through the love of Jesus Christ. The gentle love of the Lord which is long-suffering and bears with us. The gentle love of God that restores, that will give forgiveness time and time and time again. Gentle restoration does not make believe that sin isn't there. It doesn't hide its eyes from the sin, but it makes every attempt to remove that sin without trauma to the person who's stuck in it. If we cannot restore our brother gently, it would probably be better that we don't try to restore them at all. It would probably be better, in accordance to the verses that we're reading today, to take the matter to somebody who has more, uh, a more loving approach, who can, with a gentle heart, approach that brother or sister. And, and hopefully through the, the beautiful, sweet scripture that God has given to us, show them the right path back to repentance and restoration. If you're not able to restore gently with a humble heart, remembering that you too are a sinner and in need of forgiveness, perhaps someone else is better equipped to do that, restoring. Paul adds more insight to this process as verse 1 continues. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then in verse 3, just a little bit down the way there, he says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. A spiritual person is not an invincible person. Bearing spiritual fruit today does not mean that you will not be struggling against sin yourself tomorrow. This walk with Jesus is a daily dwelling with Him, a constant abiding in him, and to use another biblical metaphor, um, Jesus describes himself in, in John 15 as the true vine. We, his followers, being branches that are connected to that vine, that we must stay abiding in him. We must stay connected to what he provides for us if we want to bear good fruit. If we are disconnected from him, if we stray away from him, then we won't be able to accomplish anything. But he who abides in the true vine, the branch that's, that clings to the vine and trusts in the nutrients that that vine can bring, has the ability then to bear good fruit for his name. 1 Corinthians 10.12 reminds us saying, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So our gentle restoration must also be a humble restoration. It must be a restoration that cares for the needs of the person we're approaching but is also acutely aware of the fact that we often need correction ourselves. When we go to a person who's tangled up in sin, we also must be cautious that we don't get tangled up in that sin ourselves. Keeping company with the sinful has inherent dangers. There is a reason that Jesus could dwell among sinners and not be defiled by them. He was humbly trusting the Lord every step of the way. And He saw His presence among the, lo the lost as a mission to reach out to them with the truth, not just as an opportunity to win their affection. When our goal in community of church is to be well-liked, we tend to adapt and become like the person that we, whose affection we want to win. But Jesus was concerned not about the opinions and the affections of man. He was, about, he was concerned about the good judgment of His Father God. So consider how regular self-examination, if we would take the time to watch our own hearts, to think about what is going on in our minds, to consider our actions, and to ask, am I walking in the truth right now? Do I hold God's law in a high regard? It's not my master anymore, but is this law the template by which I try to walk and, and please my God? When we self-regulate, when we look at our own hearts and examine our lives too, we are more ready to approach others who may get tangled up in sin. If you're dealing with your own error, then you're less likely to malign or vilify somebody else who's fallen into error. If you're acutely aware of your shortcomings, then you're less likely to look down your nose at the person who needs a gentle restoration back into fellowship. Your, your skills of sympathy and empathy will be much more refined if you are also seeking restoration for yourself when you fall into sin. If you're constantly examining your life, and laying your, your life bare before the Lord in confession. Sadly, as, as you may well know, very few churches, in the West at least, engage in biblical correction. And this has been a, a major cause of the poor health of the church in the Western world today. Christian 
you don't want to go to a church where the leadership doesn't care about restoring those who have fallen into sin. It is unloving to just allow sin to abound among the people who comprise the body of Christ and to not do anything about it. It's like knowing that you have a, a fateful disease that could be cured, that could be dealt with, but just pretending like it's not there. The church will continue to struggle and strive and will have a softer voice in this world in so long as we don't confront the sins that often try to infect the body that represents Jesus Christ here. And so I pray that you'll be praying for your leaders at First Family Church and for the spiritual brothers and sisters around you that we might be diligent to have that humble and gentle heart that cares enough that when we see each other walking in error that we would go and approach one another and carefully help instruct that brother or sister back into the path that pleases the Lord. Verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When you love your brothers and sisters, someone else's hurt is your hurt. Someone else's struggle is your struggle. Someone else's weakness is the weakness that you too are battling against. There is an empathy that we are called to as the body of Christ, but it is more practical than simply feeling compassion for others. It is a call to carry. That's why this message is called the burden of brotherly love. I'm not trying to say that brotherly love is this burdensome thing, but if you truly love one another, then you're going to be invested in one another and you're going to want to be willing to carry each other when you stumble and fall, when somebody among us is weak and hurting. We should be loving enough to reach out and lend assistance so that that burden does not crush our brother and sister under its weight. So this is a call to take action on behalf of one another to battle alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ. When I was in college, um, I would always look at the syllabus on the first day and if I saw projects that were group projects, I would just cringe. I could not stand group projects in college because when you have group projects you always know there's going to be that one student that's not quite as motivated as you are right there's going to be that one student who is there because mom and dad are paying for their education and as long as they do just enough to stay in school they don't have to get a real job so there's going to be people who are not really invested in getting a good grade and so when you're working with a group there are going to be others that don't really contribute to the level that you want to contribute to and so it would be much easier to just do it on your own. And I remember sometimes when I was in college when I just, the group was not motivated, the group was not with it, and so I just pushed forward and tried to do as much of the work myself as I could because I was afraid to rely on the other people in my group. But we can't see the church that way. We can't have this bitter approach and think, well, nobody else has got it together like I do, so I'm just going to let them deal with their stuff, and I'm just going to make sure that I keep myself in my lane. I'm just going to walk my path I'm going to stay uh, pleasing to the Lord myself and everyone else is just going to have to kind of pay the penalty that they accrue. They're going to have to deal with their own judgments because I just I can't help anybody else out. That's not a loving approach to church, brothers and sisters, and that is not what we have been called to. Paul clearly desires that those in Galatia, and by extension all of those in God's holy church, would care enough for one another that even if my life is is good right now, even if I'm walking in a holy way, if, even if my actions and my words and my deeds are pleasing to God, that I can't be totally content if my brother and sister whom I love is struggling and needs help and I'm not yet giving it to them. Do we love one another to such an extent that we will take on the burden of loving a brother and sister who can't quite yet do it for themselves? To bear one another's burdens is to fulfill the law of Christ. Only Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. But now that our sin has been vanquished by the grace of Jesus, we too should be committed to fulfilling the law as best we can by the power of the Holy Spirit that God has given to fill us. Galatians 5.14 says, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if we're serious, friends, if we are serious about love, we have to be serious about sin as well. And we have to be serious about restoring one another from sin. There is no way around it. If I want what is best for you, 
And if you want what is best for me, then we will both be pointing one another towards Christ. And we will both be willing to take upon our shoulders part of the burden if it is too heavy for you to carry. Verse 4 says, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. Now this is a little bit of a tricky verse here. For each will have to bear his own load. Paul is reminding us here that there is personal responsibility. Each one tests his own work by examining his holiness with honesty. Now when it says here that, that then each person will have reason to boast in himself alone, it's contrasting for us. Too many people are content to boast in saying that my life is in order because I'm not as bad as person X or Y or Z. When I compare myself to them, I'm so much holier than they are, that must mean I'm a, I'm a holy person. When in reality, our great standard is not the people around us, it is not even our pastor. Our great standard is Jesus Christ Himself. And that's a standard that we can't really ever attain to. So any boasting that is done is, is not a boasting about I'm better than you or you're better than me. Instead, there is a sense of gratefulness that we can have when we do walk in the Lord and when we examine our hearts and we be careful that we're walking in the ways that God has called us to, not that we would brag about it, but that we would be grateful for the work that He is doing in our lives. And there are two different burdens in this passage of five verses that we're studying here. And they seem to almost contradict each other a little bit. Verse 2 tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But verse 5, just a couple of sentences later, says, for each will have to bear his own burden." So which one is it? Are we bearing one another's burden or are we bearing our own burden? Now this is where it's helpful to know a little bit about the original language that the scripture was written in. The word for a load or a burden in verse 2 is baros. Baros refers to a heavy load. If you were going to load a shipment onto a boat, it would be a baros. Uh, if you were to carry something on a caravan or on, a, on a, a, a trailer pulled behind oxen, that would be a baros. It's a load that is too heavy for a person to carry. But when we get down to verse 5, the word for load is different. The, load, uh, the word load there doesn't mean a burden that is too heavy for a person to carry by themselves. It is a word that means a person's personal load. It means like a backpack full of what they can carry. It is a word that is contrasted to the first kind of burden. So we are to carry those burdens that we can carry on our own, on our own. We have personal responsibilities and God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in truth. But when life is too difficult or when temptation is greater than what we seem to be able to bear, then the church is there to help shoulder that load with us so that we don't have to feel isolated and left out and forgotten, that we don't have to feel like we're being left behind. Isn't this a beautiful reciprocate? That it is not set up in such a way that we can just be freeloaders and let the rest of the church carry our load for us all the time. No, there is personal responsibility here. God wants us to grow. Restoration should lead to a greater maturity in us, an advancement in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a better understanding of the grace to which He has brought us. But there is also community here that we know we are weak. We know that there are times when we fall short. So what a great blessing it is to come to a family like this and to know that if I'm struggling, that there are people here that will reach out and then will notice. People that care about me enough that they'll see something is wrong and they'll reach out. People who are watching out for me so that if I say some wrong things or I do some wrong things, they'll love me enough to have the courage to come and say, Brother, I, yeah, I just wanted to talk to you about something. Things don't seem right in your life right now. Can we pray together? Can we seek the truth? This is the beauty of the body of Christ. That God has called us individually to salvation, but that together we are unified in how we live it out. Today as we conclude our time in the Word, we have the wonderful blessing of, of, of being able to recognize the sacrament that God has given to us called the Lord's Supper. And so um, as I describe the elements and what they're for, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here in this passage, uh, or this chapter rather, Paul addresses a very specific topic to the church in Corinth. He's dealing with this idea, this controversy about whether Christians are supposed to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol before it was brought to the meat market. 
And so that's not a direct issue that we really need to deal with today so much, at least not in our Western culture, but that doesn't make those verses worthless. In fact, within that discussion, there are two verses which, when taken on their own, tell us some very important things about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, or as it's sometimes called communion, is a sacrament, a holy ritual, that we practice regularly in obedience to the command of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He gave this holy experience to us as a gift to His followers. Until He returns for His church, we, His disciples, are to engage in this sacrament regularly. It is to constantly be pointing us back to the things of God and what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. So on the night before Jesus was betrayed by Judas, He took bread, which symbolizes His body. Jesus lived in a true body like you and I have. He came down and took on the nature of a man. He was still authentically God, but somehow, because He is greater than us, was able to at the same time be authentically man. And He walked in this earth like you and I walked. He grew he ate, he slept, he experienced the hardships of living in this fallen place. As we take the bread in a few moments, that bread is going to represent his life. His life was in every way like ours with one exception. We all sin against God. Jesus took on flesh, but he did what none of us could do. He lived out every single day in absolute compliance with the scripture of his Father God. So his life was unique in that it was completely pure and deserved no punishment whatsoever. And so as we eat of this bread, we're going to be eating of unleavened bread. It is bread that has no yeast in it, because in the biblical tradition, yeast represents the pervasive effects of sin and how it spreads through people and, and affects every area of life. Jesus Christ was completely sin-free, and so the bread that we will be eating in just a moment is unleavened bread. On that night, he also took a cup of wine, which symbolized his blood, which he would soon shed to pay for our sins on the cross. That blood is representative of the sacrifice that he has made for us. It is an atoning sacrifice. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people, the chosen of Israel, were called to offer up animal sacrifices to remind them that the wages of sin is death. That when we go against the one who has given us life, that is a serious offense that needs to be taken with gravity. And so they would sacrifice an animal to show that there is no cleansing from sin apart from the gift of life. Those sacrifices all pointed forward to the one gift that actually mattered, which was Jesus Christ. He took that perfect body that he lived in, free from sin, he allowed it to be unrightfully condemned, and then nailed to a cross and lifted up in the air for, uh, to be ashamed in front of everyone. As he took the burden of sin upon himself, he was crucified and punished for our sin. He paid the penalty that we deserved to pay. And the cup of the juice that we're going to be taking in just a few minutes represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled for us because He was offered as a substitutionary sacrifice. Those who trust in His gift don't have to die and be separated from God for eternity in hell. Likewise, we as His church today are blessed to partake of these elements and remember that amazing grace that Jesus showed to us by giving His life on the cross to pay our debt. It is only by that atoning work that we are washed clean and forgiven. It is only by that atoning work that we can be acceptable to the Lord and have a right relationship with Him. And so the two verses that we're about to read will help us see the significance of the sacrament. This is 1 Corinthians 10 verses 16 through 17. It says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So we learn at least two significant things about communion from this passage of Scripture. First of all, when we take of these elements, we participate in a spiritual way in the work that they symbolize. To be sure, the sacrifice that Jesus offers on the cross for our sin is a sacrifice that only He could make. Not one of us could have given our lives on the cross for another one of us. Because we all have our own guilt before the Lord God. We all owe Him the debt of life. So only Jesus Christ could have gone on that cross and offered Himself as a right sacrifice and substitute for our sins. But the suffering that Jesus endured is a very personal gift 
because the sin of all the saints was crucified on Jesus. Every human who puts their trust in Jesus is right to say that their own personal sin went with Jesus to the cross that day and was put to death. So if you're a Christian, part of you was involved in that passionate display of grace. The worst part of you, your guilt was crucified with Christ. Romans 8, 16-17 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, does that mean that we all have to suffer a martyr's death in order to qualify for heaven? Does that mean we all need to be crucified if there's any hope for us to live eternally with Him? No, He was crucified on our behalf. But He carried with Him our personal sin and put it to death on that that cross. As His obedient followers, there might be times when you are called to suffer along with Him. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will give you the strength to do so if you are called to that. But we must realize here that the, the elements, the bread and the, the juice, they remind us that we are partaking in the sufferings of Christ as His followers, that, that, that He has died for us to make us His. It's very, very personal. That is in part why we treat the practice of communion with such great reverence and respect. We don't just blaze through it and have you take it on the way out the door. We pray and we think because we're participating in a very holy activity that links us with the transformational work that Jesus did on Calvary. The second thing that this passage in 1 Corinthians 10 teaches us about communion is that it is a unifying sacrifice. The Lord's Supper brings us into clearer oneness with the Lord Jesus who saved us and into closer communion with one another as we all share in this one Savior. We who believe are many, but we are unified as one body, not because we dress the same or because we talk the same or because we look the same or we have the same culture or heritage. We are one body because we share one Savior, one redeeming grace that washed us clean and made us new. This one communion is performed as Christ commanded it to be performed because it is a picture of what made us belong to the family of God. And we want that picture to be accurate for you. The saving work of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, is what makes us a family. So by taking these elements, we're reminded of the wonderful, mysterious unity that we have with God Himself and with one another as His church. So in a few moments, we're going to begin to sing praise to our Savior through a song. And as we do that, um, we're all going to stand, not yet, but in a few moments, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And then during the course of that song, we're going to be participating in active communion today. So when you are ready, we're going to ask you to move down into the center aisle and come down to the front where you will take a cup of juice and a piece of bread. And then you'll go up to the sides, back to the seat where you're sitting now. And whenever you feel ready to do that, you take that communion and you, you participate. You, you eat of the bread, you drink of the juice, and you think about how important those elements to you and how they point your mind and your heart back to the work that Jesus Christ did. So we'll have one song to, uh, to, to partake of that communion together and we hope that you will be blessed by enjoying that, that wonderful sacrament that God has given to us. Now this is an exercise for believers. So if you're not a believer, uh, if you have not given your life to Christ today, then I would encourage you to just simply observe what's going on. This is a wonderful sacrament. It's a beautiful picture of what God has done to make us His You don't have to be a member here of our church, but you do have to have trusted in Jesus Christ by by giving Him your life and by becoming a part of the universal church if you're going to participate in these elements today. This is an exercise to be done reverently. So if you consider yourself a Christian, but you refuse to obey Jesus right now, you are actively involved in sin and you're not repentant about it, um, or you have an unwillingness to be baptized as the Scripture commands, or there is some other unrepentant opposition in you right now that you're not dealing with, then I would urge you, brother and sister, either lay that before the Lord today and repent of it and trust in Jesus Christ to overcome it in you, or simply allow the elements to pass because we don't want you to take of these elements in a way that would be shameful to what Christ did to redeem us. So if you do belong to Christ, then let this be to you a wonderful blessing and a powerful reminder of how much God loves you, that He would not spare His even His only begotten Son, that He would give Jesus Christ 
to make you new and draw you to himself. So we're going we're gonna to close right now in a word of prayer and we're going to start with a silent prayer. I'm going to give you a chance to just search your heart and to examine yourself as the passage in Galatians here says that all of us should be doing regularly. Think about what the Lord is doing in your life right now. Ask yourself if you're being stubborn to Him and if that is the case, then just confess that to the Lord and ask that through this sacrament that He would remind you that your power to overcome sin is not in yourself, it's in the Holy Spirit that lives in you now. And so we're going to take some time to pray silently. I won't lead you in that. We'll just be quiet in prayer to our Savior. And then after about 60 seconds or so, um, I will close by praying over the elements. And then our band's going to come forward. We're going to worship together. And you'll be free to come forward and get the elements. So let's bow in silent prayer and reflect on what the Lord has done to make us His. Good Shepherd, we are blessed to know that through grace we have entered into your kingdom. That it is not a place that we deserve. It's not a place that we earn by our own actions. But God, simply by trusting in your Son, Jesus Christ, and the wonderful work that He alone could do, that He alone did, that we could be made new. So I pray, Lord God, that you would let, let us reflect on our redemption today. And if there is a brother or sister who is struggling with sin right now, strengthen them, God, through Christ. Confront that sin in, in their hearts right now, even with the Holy Spirit. Or, or let a brother or sister go to them in love and help them out with it. God, we don't want to be an unpure people. We know that through Christ, you are sanctifying us day by day. So I pray that you would continue that process, Lord. Let the bread that we're about to take remind us of the body that you used as you lived here, as you preached the truth, as you healed the sick as you gave sight to the blind and made the lame walk, Father. You did greater things than those when you went to the cross by bringing spiritual life to those like us who were spiritual dead. And so I pray that you would bless us today with a rejoicing heart as we take of the juice and remember the blood that flowed from your wounds. You suffered horribly for us, Lord God, but the physical agony didn't even compare to the difficulty of becoming sin for us so that we might not know sin. I thank you that as God, death could not hold you down, that you are not defeated, that you rose again, and you reign triumphantly over your kingdom. And so thank you for being in control and being sovereign. We love you and trust you. And thank you for this time of sacrament, that we might come before you and enjoy the Lord's table as a means of bringing us back to what really started this relationship with you and I, your son Jesus Christ. I praise you and thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.